You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. I'm super grateful to introduce to you today, Greg and Allie Campbell. Welcome, guys. What's going on, fam? Well, it's been great just being here. Like, to be honest, uh, just to have great fellowship with uh, many of you guys already and looking forward to the picnic afterwards. And because um, this just we'll tell more about our story, but it's been very just uh, enriching for my wife and I during this time. And so I just really appreciate just how God's spirit is always the same in his churches. And uh, you guys, even though you might just be meeting us for the first time, you have played a, a vital part just to really encourage and strengthen us during this time. But uh, yeah, as we said, we are from, well, not like born and raised in Kentucky, just so you guys know, because I was like, I don't have the accent. She doesn't have the accent at all. Uh, at least I don't think I do. But um, but yeah, we uh, the three essentials of Kentucky are basketball, bourbon, and horses. So uh, if you want to talk about that afterwards, we would love to. We know a lot about that, kind of. Um, but um, yep, this is my wife, Allie. Um, she is the love of my life. <laughs> and uh, she's why our kids are beautiful. And um, yeah, I, I, as you said, we have a daughter named Amaya, and this is little Greg. I always say like that, hey, little Greg, you on the block, man? I see little Greg. He's four months old, but he's his, he's the size of a six-month-old, so I'm not looking forward to uh, paying for his food later on. But um, yeah, it's just been a great time, and I want to thank uh, uh, Steve and Carrie just for bringing us out here, and the church for bringing us out here, for real. Um, it's been, like I said, it's been a really good time. You guys are amazing just spending time with you all, and just hearing your guys' story, just you guys helping us with our kids, and just be understanding in this crazy time. Like, it's it's very uh, warming to us. But um, before we get started with today's sermon, let's go to God in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning just grateful to have you in our lives. God, we are grateful for the ways that you've worked in our lives. God, and we are grateful that we have refuge in you. Father, as we've come here this morning, God, we ask that your Holy Spirit just fills this room. God, that your Holy Spirit softens our hearts. That you open our ears and you open our eyes to the message that you want us to proclaim. God, remove my wife and I from this. Just use us as vessels. God, use us for your glory, for your honor. God, use us in a way to really love and encourage our brothers and sisters here. And allow us to, to be the ones that, that really just preach from a place of sincerity and honesty and love. And God, we're just grateful for this opportunity just to come here and bow down before you and worship, not only in song, but also into your word. God, thank you for this time. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. What is your story? What is your story? You know, this is a common question that we ask, and even we ask as disciples when you hear the story of, what is your story, you can begin to think about your conversion story. But as human beings, we are all made up of so many different 
stories. That our stories are much more than just our conversion story, but also the stories of our lifetime, but those who have also gone before us. What's also great about asking what is your story if you're an introvert or maybe an ambivert like myself, it's a great conversation starter. It's to simply ask, what is your story? And since I've been here, I've heard a lot of stories. And I think this is something that this church really thrives in and just already sees. It's really telling stories for each other to get to know one another. And I love to listen to people's stories because it reveals things that uh, who someone really is. It reveals things that are important to them. It reveals uh, things that they're passionate about. And it reveals just the, even the, the highlights and the darkness that makes them who they are today. But what is more is as you begin to listen to the story, you begin to hear the narrative that God has already written. You hear the narrative that he is making for each and every one of us to make himself known to all humanity. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart. You and I are walking epistles. We are walking words of God. Our stories are the words of God. It shows his power in all of our lives. A story, our stories have been written before we've been born. And when we look at how all the past like, impacts our future, we can just marvel at how God is an amazing author. And now that we come to this relationship with God, we, we get to partner with him to continue this story. This story that goes on to impact the world. And the more that we allow God to really help us go through this story, we see his fingerprints in every single aspect of our lives. And it's comforting to know that he is with us. And it's in our stories. He he shows us who we really are. The more we walk with God, he shows us who we've always been in his eyes. And that's where we find our purpose. Not just our purpose to to seek and save the lost, but our our specific purpose that we are passionate about and where our gifts lie. Today we want to talk about how each and every one of us has a history that illuminates God and his story. The title of today is simply this. Our history is his story. Our history is. Is his story. And for us to grasp this concept of our history being a story and to see how it's his story, we must embrace our brokenness and our blessedness justly. We must embrace our brokenness and our blessedness justly. Meaning that we have to see the both of them in the balance and how they're both essential to seeing God. Whether we see ourselves as blessed and highly favored or damaged goods, both of them are essential to see God's story in our lives. You know, one thing I love about working with people and doing the ministry is just that you get to know each other. You see, we're all messed up. We're all broken. And sometimes we try to hide it. It's like, no, we all got issues, guys. But it's in those issues 
where God's power is displayed. It's easier to embrace and tell the stories of the things that we celebrate, you know, the blessings. Like, we love to talk about how God has blessed us in our careers, academic. Uh, we could think of different accomplishments, successes, or, or gains. Like, hey, I got married. Hey, I had kids. Even spiritual breakthroughs. But for some of us, it's much more difficult to embrace and tell the stories of our brokenness. Our hurts, our wounds, our trauma, our abuse. Harmful habits, maybe a lack of spirituality, spiritual places of pain. It can be difficult to embrace. But when we begin to embrace and accept these things, that's where we find healing. And in that healing is when people see God. That's when we begin to see God in our stories. Like you think about, the, it makes me think about the Beatitudes. Like it be said, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who are meek. These are the first four. It says, blessed these people. Like, how are these people blessed? But if you continue to read, read, it tells you how they are best, what they will, what will happen. Meaning that they're blessed because Jesus can change the narrative. They are blessed. We are blessed. Because when we look through, look to Jesus through our brokenness, the narrative changes. Are you guys with me this morning? Turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 6. Now we're going to try to go through this to use Gideon as a, uh, a framework for this, okay? And so a little bit to understand, okay, there's this period of 40 years of peace that the Israelites have. Then they do evil in the eyes of the Lord, which is they, they commit idolatry. And in this idolatry, there is idol worship. You know, there is a, it's, it's, it's like an act of spiritual warfare. Okay. And so they're, they're praying to this, this God of weather and, and this God of a fertility. And at the time it's like, okay, it wasn't like they weren't worshiping Yahweh God. They were worshiping Yahweh God and these other gods as well. But God is very clear. He's like, worship no other God. There are no other gods before me. Okay? So because of their evil that they did by worshiping uh, these false gods, they went to seven years of oppression and poverty. Now imagine going through 40 years of, uh, of peace and then having seven years of oppression and poverty. We've gone through years of COVID. Imagine COVID for seven years. Even after experiencing 40 years of peace, we can see just in our time of just a few years of COVID how it's changed our normal and it's changed us. Now imagine seven years of that. And I'm saying this to kind of understand the scenario that's going on here. The insecurity, the fear, the spiritual corruption. But yet the story is very clear when you begin to pick it apart. The word, Gideon, that name means hewer. And what hewer is, it's, it's someone who cuts down wood and stone uh, in a way to, or at the foundation to build back something new. That's what Gideon's name means. It's kind of foreshadowing for the story that we're about to read, so just so you guys know. But starting in chapter 6, starting in verse 11, it's... Back it up. 
says, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and please and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Understand the backdrop. And on the scene, we see Gideon threshing, putting wheat into the wine press, trying to save it, trying to hide it from the Midianites. And then out of nowhere, the angel of the Lord comes and says, I am with you, mighty warrior. I'm pretty sure Gideon doesn't see himself as a mighty warrior right here. And as as God is trying to just tell him the, the plans and the story that he is writing for Gideon, he starts to only see himself through his brokenness. How, how, how can this be? My clan is the weakest and I'm the youngest. You can't do anything with my life, God. I know you can do this, but not through me. Is what he is saying. But there's this, he asked for a sign because he does believe in the power of God. It's just kind of like he's saying, he goes, I do, because, uh, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And so he asked for a sign because he wants this to be his life, but he needs a little, little extra, extra push. And I think we all can relate to this because going through what he's gone through for the last seven years and how he views himself and see like you're this mighty warrior, like, oh man, like to go deliver all of Israel, that sounds like a lot, God. I don't know if I'm ready for this to be the next chapter of my life. So a John Piper quote says, we look at life from the backside of a tapestry. And most of the time, what we see is loose thread, tangled knots, and the like. But occasionally, God's light shines through the tapestry, and we get a glimpse of the larger design that God's weaving together with the darks and the lights through existence. His story is the big picture, the big tapestry, the other side that's complete, that um, has all the design in it. When on the back, we can see just the, you know, loose threads, the knots, the things that are incomplete. I can relate so much to Gideon because, you know, circumstances, they can define us. They can define me. And only seeing the backside of the tapestry, we lose sight of what God is actually doing. Um, I've constantly battled wanting to prove myself, wanting to show my worth, 
um, wanting to show my value to prove to others, but also to prove to myself that I am good enough. Um, I am worthy. In my childhood, there was abuse that I had rejected, I ignored, I never spoke about. Because um, I was ashamed. I was afraid. I was afraid what my family was going to think. I was afraid of what other people were going to think of me. And when I started studying the Bible at age 14, questions were asked, but I quickly dismissed them. Um, I purposely withheld information because of that shame, of the rejection that could possibly happen. Um, I was afraid, and I didn't want to honestly see reality. I didn't want to see my brokenness. I wanted to live in a facade where everything was okay, and God is good, and I don't have to actually address my brokenness. I don't have to deal with what is actually happening in my life. And I so desperately wanted to prove to myself without acknowledging or accepting this brokenness. And so I did get baptized at 14. Um, And I went through the teens, and I went through campus ministry, constantly trying to prove my worth to people and to God, trying to keep up the rat race, trying to prove, okay, reach out to this many people, or study the Bible with this many people, or baptize this many people, just to prove that I had it together. But I wasn't together. I was still broken. I still didn't acknowledge what was going on. You know, when people ask me what my story was, I would just say it's a typical Kingdom Kids story. My mom was in the singles, you know, nothing too elaborate. And again, still hid the side of me that was broken because I was so desperately trying to prove myself. It wasn't until 2020 when my awesome husband, um, actually, I was sharing my story to some of our friends. And something from that, because he's heard it before, came up where he started asking me questions. And with those questions, I really started digging in to, okay, why was I withholding information? What was going on? And, you know, with COVID shutting everything down, I had a lot of time uh, to process and to wrestle with Scripture, wrestle with God. And I saw more clearly than I ever had before that I did not have a clear conscience before God when I was baptized at 14. Um, I was ashamed of my brokenness instead of seeing how God was weaving my brokenness into the beautiful tapestry of my story and of my life. And so with that, you know, baptism, it's supposed to be this new journey. It's supposed to bring new life. It's joyful, uh, new chapters of the story. And from wrestling, I uh, came to the conclusion and I was baptized April 3rd of 2021. Um, And I made Jesus Lord of my life. And I felt so free. Thank you. I honestly, the true joy and freedom that comes through God, through Jesus's blood, I felt. And I see that even with just as Gideon couldn't see God's authorship within his story, I wasn't able to see how God's handprints were all over my story. Even when I was at 14, raised in the church. God still was protecting me all throughout that time. That's still a part of my story. Even though, yes, I got submerged into water, I did not have the Holy Spirit, but God still used that time to work on my character. He knew where I was at emotionally, mentally, um, developmentally at 14, why I was afraid. And he had compassion and he loved me. He still used that time as part of my story that I honestly am so grateful to share with you today. Um, Like it says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, Jesus died for us. When I was still in darkness, 
Jesus died for me, and I didn't have to prove anything else. I didn't need to, I didn't need to prove that I was worth his love. He loved me because he died for me, and that's all I needed to hear. That's all I needed to know. What I so appreciate about Gideon is that he is relatable. Through his perspective, he didn't see himself worth anything. He didn't see himself as a mighty warrior. Yet God knew where Gideon was at. He saw a mighty warrior. Looking at my story and how it's still being written, I cherish it. How God is patient with me, how God protected me, as well as how God has led me to places where I had never dreamed of. Because of all the, the dark threads, also the vibrant gold threads, too, that makes me who I am today. And so I am encouraged to see just how, just as God um, showed Gideon and, and proved to him that he was there supporting him, even in his doubts, that his story was still written. And so we can see how um, and what a mighty warrior that he is today. Now, after this, uh, this sign, uh, Gideon began to turn the pages to really see what was next in his story. And God met him right where he was and invited him to partner with him to write these next pages and to, or to write this next arc of the story of God. And despite his fear, the more that Gideon began to embrace and to see his brokenness, the clearer and clearer of who really a hero of the story became. In, in, verse, in verse 25, there we go. It says, That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on top of it, on top of its height, using the wood of the Asherah pole and cut down the offer and offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Why is this significant? As discussed, it was like his name is a hewer. And God said, this is what I want you to do, to cut these things down and to build something new for me. And what happens after this, this is exactly what Gideon does. He does it at night so that no one else will see him. But then he's also shocked at the response of the people. He was afraid of what they may say. He was afraid that they may see him or, 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 or stone him, make him an outcast. But instead, they rallied behind him. He grabbed the horn and blew it and said, follow me. Follow me. And even though it took the prompting of God to allow Gideon to tear down these false gods, and even though he was still had his own doubts about himself, God still used it to write a story, to see how God was continuing to move despite his heart, despite how he wasn't all in yet. And what takes place next is he asks for two sins, I mean, two sins, sorry, two signs. And he's like, hey, show me, uh, the, make, make the grass wet and, the, and this fleece dry. Okay, here you go, boom. Okay, uh, don't be angry with me, God. Can you uh, do that in reverse? 
just so I know that you are with me? He's like, okay, here you go. He's like, man, I thought I was going to get out of it. But the story continues where he's bringing him to this battle with Midian. And he has this massive army to go against him. But God's like, you know what? We need to shrink this army down so that people don't think it was from their own hands that they were saved. But they know that who the real Savior is, and that is God. And so it dwindled down to 300. And going to chapter 7, we'll see a little bit more of what happens. Now, this is going to be a little bit abridged, but I want, I want you guys to see the story here. So it says, during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up and go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. And listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could, their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. And so Gideon goes down. He says, if you are afraid, you can go down and hear this, what's being spoken. And Gideon goes down there, and as he's approaching, he hears someone talking about this dream that he says, this is nothing but the sword of Gideon. And in this moment, something switched in Gideon. Something switched. Again, seeing God meet him where you are, he's like, if you are afraid, Gideon, I know you're afraid. Go down here and listen to see what I am doing. And his response is that he bowed down. And worshipped. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And 300 men decimated the Midianite army. When I read this passage just now, it's like this doesn't seem like the same Gideon. How he is talking with so much conviction, so much confidence and belief. Something happened when he went down to the camp to hear this dream and its interpretation. In this moment, he stopped believing in his own narrative through the eyes of his brokenness. But to see that despite his brokenness, he is blessed by God because God is with him. And in that, he began to be all in. He began to believe in what he has been given to see that God has given him enough. To deliver the hand, to deliver the Israelites from the hands of Midian. Because it doesn't seem like this, this plan that he made up came from God. He's like, just do what I do. Somehow he knew this is going to work out. Or maybe it was just like, alright, well, if you're with me, God, let's just do this. I, I think it'll work. And God blessed it. God blessed it. For you and I, when we begin to believe who God has created us to be. When we begin to believe and see the story of that our brokenness is essential to see our blessedness, the combination of this is just, it's 
it's life-changing. We begin to believe in the things that God has given us. We begin to believe in who we are and who we have become. Not from a place of, of doubt, but a place of, of conviction. What I love about this story is in the beginning, God calls him a mighty warrior. He calls him a mighty warrior. And God was patient with him and walked with him. And then in the end of the story, you see it play out. And you see how much of a mighty warrior he really is. The story was already written for Gideon. It was a matter of him choosing to turn the page. It was a matter of him to continue to walk in the steps. For you and I, I think of, I think of Luke 10 where Jesus says, Don't rejoice that the demons submit to your name, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Each and every one of us, our story, the end, we already know the sins, the end, spoiler alert, okay? What's amazing about this journey is that we know how it's going to end, but it's a mystery of what's in between. And we see God's glory, but we also see more and more people through our stories impact so many other people so that their names will be written in the book of life. But our stories, they're... they're even though our stories are different, it just really just shows how powerful and amazing how God is. When we hold to this, when we hold to understand this story that we've been given, it cultivates an intentionality. And it cultivates an intentionality that we seize every single opportunity that God gives us. It allows us to, to write the next page into the next chapter, into the next chapter. Because we know how it ends. In every book, in every chapter, it's not always glorious. There's hills and valleys. But it's all essential to get to the end. Now, when I think about my own story, I was like, what does my name mean? Like, let me just do a little Google search, like, you know, just to kind of see what my name means. Gregory means watchful one, vigilant. Lee, L-E-E, that's my middle name, means pasture or meadow. And I started to think, like, being a watchman over a meadow, all this other stuff, I'm like, I've always had this innate desire to watch out for people, to look after people. And through my own understanding of my own brokenness, wanting to be something for people that they didn't have. And being aware, being observant. I can think about how my dad raised me in that way. And I'm like, this is kind of strange that my name means this and I'm pastoring God's people. That's what I've been doing for the last 11 years. I can't make this up, guys. I was like, this is, as Steve said, I wanted to play football for the rest of my life. But it didn't start out that way. Like, I, in my own brokenness, I saw myself as just bad. And I feel like all the things in my life that, like I, that was going terrible, I'm the common denominator, so I'm just inherently and just essentially bad. And this perspective came from my childhood, and I began to unravel this thing. This, just this past December, talking to uh, our brother Kyle Spears. And he helped me to see that it's like, I'm not the source of all my bad. But I have deep wounds of rejection and abandonment. And my parents were phenomenal parents. And I've been blessed to have 
both of my parents in my life in the same household. And as all parents are, they're imperfect. And trying to do their best, they make mistakes. You know, I have feelings of, of rejection from my mom because I remember growing up, it was like, do this, do that, behave. You're, you have to act a certain way to get praise. And this is not to shine her in this, this terrible light at all. My father, he worked third shift and and uh, my brothers were in school. My mom was at work and I'm at home at ages three and four while my dad sleeps, taking care of myself. Wanting my father to pay attention to me, to to spend time with me. But knowing that he has to work. I don't blame them. I don't. Because understanding more of my story, I don't think I could have done any better. My last name, Campbell. It's Scottish. I don't look Scottish at all. Scottish, the Scottish name Campbell means wry mouth, crooked mouth. The Scottish, the, 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 the Campbell clan, they came into the Americas in the 18th century. And there's Campbell plantations in the deep south. My father is from Mississippi. So there's a, probably a high chance that my ancestors adopted the last name of their slave owner. This is essential to my story. As we're in Black History Month, you can look around and see people of color. Black, indigenous, people of color, to be more specific. When you look at them, I want you to see that they are black history. Black history isn't about the struggle and the struggle alone, okay? And what slaves and, and, and their civil rights movement had to go, like all that, it's much more than that. It's to see people of color and acknowledge them as human, as your peers, to see them, to see their color as something that is unique, different, not different in the sense of just, it's just different in a good way. Like I look out to the sea, the sea of people, it's beautiful. You see that a rainbow of colors is beautiful. And those who are melanated, they want to just be seen the same. My father, there we go. That's me when I was little. I was supposed to show that picture. That was me at three and a half. But my father, boop, born in 1960, his father was a sharecropper. And he told me later on in life that there was a time where the, uh, the KKK beat him to a pulp. And he did not retaliate because he knew if he retaliated, that would end his life. Him being a sharecropper was the way that they survived. My dad in high school, he would go to school. He would get off, get off school early, go drive a school bus for the elementary school kids, go back to school for football practice, go home to go work in the field as a sharecropper, then finally eat, then do homework, go to sleep, get up early and do the same thing the next day. What was common was burning crosses, lynchings. There was a time where their, their well water got poisoned, and the FBI did nothing. 
They just said, sorry about you. My brother's younger, my, 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 my dad's younger brother was murdered by a white woman who later came forward and she, and she, and she confessed to my grandmother and she said, there's been enough harm already. Just go. My mom, she had a, a, a mixed girls experience. That's a whole other story for another day. <laughs> okay. But this is the reality that they grew up in. And then now in the 80s, they're asking themselves, how do I raise three black boys in America? How? How do I do this even experiencing my own trauma? They had a heart to want to give us greater opportunities. Like I said, I, wouldn't have done, I don't know if I would have done anything different. How my mom raised us, she was trying to raise black boys to be in a white majority world. To act a certain way to survive. My father works terrible hours to provide money to give us opportunities that he didn't even have. Yes, I was wounded, but I understand and I don't blame them. I say this to, to, because we've all experienced different things. But maybe if you take a step back, we may see our own issues in history a little different. Or we can ha- see compassion. Even after everything my father bestowed upon me, he told me these stories much later. And I was like, why did, why did you wait so long? Why didn't you tell me? He's like, son, you would fight at the drop of a dime. I know you. And he's just like, it's not worth it. And he never met a stranger. My dad would, would talk to anybody and everybody. And then when, when and realizing, I was like, dad, like, how don't you have this hatred? He says, the son, the son, the hatred has to stop somewhere. He goes, I want to do my part to stop the hatred. But I'm like, it shouldn't be you the one. You're, you're, they need to be the ones that are ca- ca- uh, trying to reconcile. He's like, son, I got to do my part for you and for your kids. I share this because this is something I've wrestled with for a long time. More specifically, why should I have to reconcile when I'm the offended? In Romans chapter 5, verse 10 it says, For if we, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We were the offenders. God is the offended, and he reconciled himself to us. What is more, God is in the place of privilege, and he reconciled himself to those who are underprivileged, who are mortal. Meaning that even in our social structure, it doesn't matter where you stand. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have no excuse but to reconcile yourself to others. This is the example of my earthly father and our father in heaven, and it's been challenging because it's much more to me than just matters of racism. 
but just those who have treated me unjustly that are close to me. I'm going to tell this story real quick, and then I'm going to just try to just wrap this up. So, I never thought I would be here January 1 of this year. And the, the truth of the matter is, my wife and I have been let go because the, the church cannot financially support our staffing. But going back, it's like our transition was not smooth at all. And... The guy before us, he was like a father figure to me and was walked with him for eight years. And the way things were handled, I felt abandoned. But in my abandonment, I chose to abandon him. I said, I don't want anything to do with you. And that was one of my biggest mistakes. Because the reality was, I wanted him in my life. But because of my hurts, I just stiffed on him. And everything that we have gone through in Lexington, it's like, it's brought all these feelings back up. And I don't, I'm like, I don't want to feel this way towards this man anymore. But I can't forgive him. And I asked my wife, I'm like, I, I just can't do it. And she's like, well, what does it look like to forgive? I'm like, I have to invite him back into my life. But if I do that, I might get hurt again. So before we, a couple weeks ago, I called him up and we, we talked a little bit and I was just like, hey, I need to ask for forgiveness. Because how I feel right now towards you is not fair to you. Because the grace that God has given me, no one deserves to feel this way towards anybody else. I, I was so grateful to say that because I didn't realize me holding on to it was playing into this narrative of my past like I'm just bad. And if I admit that I need forgiveness, then it's like I have to, then I'm like, I am bad. But in return, he asked for forgiveness himself about not fighting for our relationship as much more than he should have. And there was this moment of just healing for the two of us. And I'm just glad to have him back in my life and to kind of just move to this next chapter of my life. But without this sense of brokenness anymore and to see how healing in this time is to love in a way that's difficult for me. Whew. Um, why it's so much for me is that I feel free and just out so much hate that's why I have this up here I don't know why this is not working there we go just, just, just hate and just anger and bitterness it was just seeping into my soul skewing my view and letting it go is just so free. You know, our brokenness to the eyes of our blessedness allows us to no longer be defined by our brokenness. 
that's why it's so essential to the story, to our story, to God's story, to see that we can be sinners and still have someone die for us. And then I think of 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says that's what some of you were, that we can still sin and not be seen as sinners. God gave us a story. God is the story. He is the main character. It's his writing, his authorship that makes our story so significant. Because you think about the way that you live. Why would you live this way if you didn't believe in this all-powerful God? He makes us significant. Questions to think about as we about to take communion before we get to the actual questions. But, but I want to just listen to these questions to begin to ponder. What do you allow to define you? Do you see your narrative just through your blessedness or through your brokenness? Or do you see both as essential to see God's story in your life? What brokenness is God waiting for you to accept? What blessings are waiting on the other side of accepting them? Ponder these things because they'll help you answer these questions. See that, man? I'm trying, man. There we go. If you were to redefine your story through God's story, how would it change your narrative? Second, who could God impact through your story today? These are the two questions I want us to discuss as we take communion. Amen? Amen. You can bring up to your groups of two to four. I guess, just go. One second. Oh, hello. Here we go. All right. All right. <laughs> oh, thank you guys so much for allowing us to, to speak and to, for Greg to preach for you, for us to just come before you and, and share our story. I hope that this time you guys talking together allowed you to really talk about how your story is beautiful, how your story is truly God uh, orchestrating it and, and building a beautiful masterpiece through it all that can not only help your perspective and as God continues to write your story, but also to help others as well. Right now we're about to take communion, so I will pray. Please bow your heads with me. Father God, uh, I am in awe of how you love us so much, God. You allow um, situations not to define us. You allow uh, things to happen, uh, the good and the bad and the ugly. And, and still, God, you can make it beautiful. You can make something that looks dead uh, to come to life again, God. You can, um, you have and you have formulated us into your body and you've made us uh, new, Father. Thank you for providing that for your son. Thank you for its sacrifice. Thank you uh, for seeing us and, and, and writing our stories with us, Father, that you are partners with us, that you um, don't force us to do anything, but you want us to walk along with you, to follow you, to see honestly how beautiful it is um, when we're in line with you, Father, when we're 
following your light, when we're following your spirit, Father. I pray just for right now that we can just remember how you have blessed us, how you have provided for us, how you have uh, secured us, um, and how our name is written in the book of life, God. Thank you so much. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your love. Thank you for helping us write our story and continue to help us, continue to bless us uh, with it being written. I love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.